Ah, we come to the end of chapter 9 of uh, Romans, and that has been quite the blessing, hasn't it? It's definitely explained to us the very sovereignty of God, the potter who does what he desires to do with the clay. So as we come to the end, we really see a summation of nine, and it's uh, really the condition of Israel. Uh, Paul began the chapter with his concern of the Israelites, of his fellow Jews. He was one. And he was so concerned and so loved them so much that he would uh, do anything, I mean anything, for their salvation, for his kinsmen. He was in sorrow. He was in grief because his nation as a whole uh, was in unbelief. They had rejected their Messiah. Jesus had been there. Uh, He went on to tell that God had not failed because of their unbelief. They are held responsible for their unbelief. His promises never said that He was going to save everybody in the world, or uh, in this case, every Jew that had ever been born. He never said that. And so therefore, it's not that he was unfaithful to his promises and saying something and then not coming through with it. Uh, They would ask then if he elected people, certain ones and not all of them, isn't that unfair of God? Isn't that unjust? Isn't that uh, something that would be unbelievable about who God is? I can't believe he would do that, they would say. And of course, Paul had the answer as he went on to demonstrate using Moses as an example. He was the one who gave the people the law and he said that he gave him, God gave him mercy. And on Pharaoh, he actually hardened. God did those. Even though man is responsible and how he responds to God what he ultimately comes to is that God is the potter and the people are the clay. The clay doesn't talk back to the potter and say, why did you make me this way? God is that sovereign and He can do what He, can, what he will do. He is also a God of power. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of justice and He puts that on display in His judgment of sin and His judgment of people who reject His Son. And that is for His glory, because if we did not have those attributes on display, we would not fully see who God is. As it will take an eternity to know who fully God is, even with that aspect, we know the justice of God, His righteousness, His holiness, His wrath, His power, don't we? And he's put it on display whenever he's judged the world, whether it be uh, to Adam and Eve as they sinned that first time, or the bringing the flood, or the judgment upon the pagan neighbors of Israel, and then Israel themselves. And so we've seen that all through the Old Testament, and we know that that's part of who God is. But it also said that although there are vessels of wrath, put on display for His glory. There are vessels of mercy who also seeing the glory of God by all of His attributes. 
We've seen the ones that would seem very judging, and they are, but God was patient all through that time. It displayed His patience when He judged sinners because He gave them not decades, not centuries, uh, many, many centuries that He gave all during that time before He put the real judgment on them. But it's all for us to see the riches of His glory. And that's what Romans 9 has presented all the way through there. It's about His glory. And His glory is in His free choosing to do whatever He so will because He has every right to do it. He is God. That's simple to understand. But it's a stumbling block for those who do not believe that kind of thought of who God is. Uh, He chose a certain number of Jews who would be in the family of God And He chose a certain number of Gentiles to be in the family of God. They are all saved the same way. What's interesting is that uh, God gave prophecy through prophets telling this would happen to Israel and this would happen to the Gentiles. He foretold that, gave it in detail, and He spoke about the remnant of the Jews. Not all the Jews. And you see, that's why Paul is addressing this in Romans 9. And just because we're closing out Romans 9 today doesn't mean we've come to the end of this treatise. No, it's just started because in 10, he starts giving us more details on how that works. And so in 10 and in 11, we will continue with that thought as we will get, I think, a very, very clear understanding of what God's eternal plan is all about. And uh, we've looked at Him before the foundation of the world, and then we've seen Him in time and space calling His elect to Him. He will save a remnant of Jews, and He will save a number of Gentiles. And uh, if He didn't do that, then everything would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, which means everything is burned up, it's done, it's over, there is nothing left. Unless he saves a remnant, unless there is election, there would be none saved. That's a big point, isn't it? And that's really what I think Paul is very much establishing in this chapter 9 as he talked about election. Jacob and Esau. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. How about before that? Isaac and Ishmael. I know I keep harping on this every week, and I keep going back to that, but boy, all of a sudden it comes to a closure. We get an understanding of it even when we do chapter 9, but we'll get it even more clear as it progresses on. So uh, Paul alluded to the Gentiles, and he did more than alluding. He actually said uh, them, the uh, ethne, which is Gentiles. You heard the word ethnicity. That word is related to what we are familiar with, Gentiles. Ethnicity. Something that's different than the Jews. If you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. You are ethne. So in verse 24, he said, uh, even us whom he also called, and speaking of the Jews all up to this time, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And so now he is saying, he just didn't come to elect Jews, but he also came to elect Gentiles. And he used 
scripture, the Old Testament to come forth and show by Hosea and Isaiah. And that's what we covered last week. And that's where we left off. And he proved through scripture that he would go to the Gentiles. Many Old Testament passages. He uses Hosea and then Isaiah here, especially for the Jewish people that he would uh, elect. And uh, also he told them that he would judge them too in those passages. So it is a shocker to the Jews though. They didn't get that part. God has a plan that goes outside of the Israelites. And that is why election is a key theme. I'm not just trying to do my hobby horse here about election. We can't avoid it here in, in chapter 9. Some do and they'd rather not to cover this because it's very offensive. That is the idea of this last section because it was very offensive to the Jews that God would elect some of them and some that He passed over. He didn't elect the whole Jewish nation to be saved. He elected them as a nation, but out of them He called true Israel. So election is the key theme and it stays consistent all the way even into our section today from 30 through 33. And that's the idea. Uh, we've been introduced now to the Gentiles being called in to God's plan. How did the Gentiles become saved since they were far off from God? They, they had nothing from God as far as revelation. They didn't have the law, the oracles. They didn't have all the benefits that the Jews had. How did that happen? How is, how is it that the Jew who pursued righteousness, a law of righteousness, did not as a whole obtain righteousness? And he goes to the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, who did not love God, and he went to them and brought them in and gave them righteousness. How does that happen? The Jews would be the most logical choice to say it's them who he's going to save. Why would the Gentiles? Because they were very pagan, and we'll be going over that. The thing is, the Jews did not obtain righteousness. They did not attain to that. Our title is Concerning Unbelief. It's the first word, unbelief. You cannot blame it on God. And that is the responsibility of man. There is sovereignty of God, but man is held responsible for what God gives him. Uh, why do we have prayer? Why do we have evangelism if God is sovereign anyway, why do I pray? Because He's going to do His will anyway, right? We always ask that. Uh, but, well, uh, the simple answer is because He commands us to. Why do we go into all the world to preach the Gospel? Because He commands us to. Uh, but another thing is because we love God and we love our neighbor and we love the people who are lost and we want to take that news that we heard that we didn't deserve and He converted us with that. So we're concerning about unbelief, how God cannot be blamed when people like, for instance, the Jews have unbelief and they reject Him. It's their responsibility. It's their fault. And this is what we're going to be talking about 
today, and it's going to be involving faith versus unbelief. Let's read that text. Let's stand, Romans 9, starting at verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness. What? Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we have been on quite a journey in the whole book of Romans. We've come to a very delicate topic, but it's about who you are. It's not about what we just hold dear to us and what we just want to talk about all the time, but it's about the very sovereignty of you in doing what you want as you've worked with certain Jews, as you've worked with certain Gentiles, and as you show here, we see that there has been a stone of stumbling, a stone that is a blessing to some and a stumbling point to anyone who rejects you, rejects the stone, rejects Jesus Christ, Lord, thank you for granting us faith and repentance so that we would be able to trust in your Son that gives us righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have arrived at the last section of 9, verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? Okay, what do we deduce from all of this that you've given us? Why are many Gentiles and only some Jews being saved? But Israel as a whole is not. For now. What are we going to say? You know, that these Gentiles, what, what, what's the deal? Paul, what are, you, what are you saying then if this be the case? Well, Gentiles are finding righteousness. And as a whole, the Jew is not. Now, there are Jews that are being saved, obviously. We've heard of Messianic Jews. They're simply Christians who are Jewish people. They trusted Christ. They're part of the church. The Gentiles were not seeking God. Would you uh, say that? The Gentiles as a whole were not seeking God and His salvation. They had their own gods. They had their own laws. And they would be far away from God, far away from salvation, unless God would so choose a particular Gentile to be saved. And he did that. Even throughout the Old Testament, it would be here and there. Who knows how many he really did save during that time. But we did know that he saved Nebuchadnezzar. 
He saved all the people who were not Jews before Abraham because there were no such thing as Jews and Gentiles. They were all people. Uh, but the Gentile uh, had no really inclination to seek after God. They had their own idols. As we go through the Old Testament, go through Kings and all that study, we see that idolatry had reached its max. Matter of fact, it not only reached its max, it was worse than the Gentiles, even in Judah. It was worse than what they did. Hard to believe. But, you see, the Gentiles as a whole were not believers in God. They had no revelation from God. They did not have His law. And they had lost their ability to tell right from wrong. You see, in Romans 1, it talks about that. That's where we started at many months ago, if you remember. In Romans 1, he talked about uh, the gospel and faith, righteousness. The just shall live by faith. And then he started talking about the wrath of God is unleashed on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. See, even the Gentile had a truth there and they suppressed that. They knew about a true God. They still do today. They always have. But they suppressed that truth. And so they knew about that there was a creation and that there were invisible attributes and such, but their foolish heart became darkened. They uh, took on idols and the images of man and then birds and then four-footed animals and then crawling insects. And that's how the idolatry went. And God then, what did He do? He therefore gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And we are all very familiar with all of this. We have friends, we have relatives, we have people we know that have now taken part of that and they show what has happened down through the history of mankind. And so the idolatry passes on down to where man just abandons what's natural and goes to what is unnatural. He goes to the very opposite of what truth is. Upside down, calls right wrong and wrong right. And it is on display in front of our eyes every day. We experience it. What we're seeing is Romans 1. And so they do not acknowledge God any long, longer and God gives them over to a depraved mind to do these things which are not proper. Now that's where they're at and God decides to save these people. He decided to save you guys. Praise God. He decided to save me. That's even more unbelievable. Why would He save me? Well, I'm not going to answer that. It certainly was because of me, but I can tell you, mankind has inverted man, God's very order, order of nature. And we see that they were alienated from God. God took His hands off them, chose a people by the name of Israel. They are later called. They are His people, and they wind up rejecting Him. 
after many centuries and centuries. And now Paul comes back to this and he shows that prophecy has come true. And he says, uh, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, by the way, that Gentiles goes back to verse 24 where he first mentions the Gentiles in chapter 9. Where he mentions not only Jews, but Gentiles will be saved. And he started talking about the elect of the Gentiles. So here we are now in verse 30, and he mentions the Gentiles again. Let's look to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And this is a fascinating section. Chapter 2 shows that all men uh, are wicked, they're evil, uh, there is none righteous, everybody is dead in their trespasses and sins. Everybody. Jew, Gentile, every man, woman, child, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they are in according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, and the sons of disobedience. And they also were formerly living in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of all flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Boy, is that ever established, right? And so, when we get to Ephesians 2... Ephesus is not in Israel. It is a Gentile land. Paul goes to the Ephesians. There's a church that has started there and they become believers in Christ. There are also Jews in the synagogue who become believers in Jesus Christ. And he starts talking about the Gentile. And so we pick it up and let's do it in verse 11. I have verse 12 and 13. Let's do all three of those. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were in that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were separate, you were alienated from the Messiah, the one who can give you righteousness. God separated you from Him. Okay? And He excluded you from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't even a part of Israel and were strangers or aliens to the covenants of promise. Israel had it all to become saved. They had the Word of God. They had all the, the temple. They had the sacrifices. Everything they had was to lead them to the Messiah who would come years later. And they had the Gentiles had no hope. And without God in the world, the Jews had hope and had God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, Back in the 60s, remember that phrase, far out. We were far out. Having been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, the Gentiles never sought Him. They never had the truth to even seek Him. They didn't have the gospel. And Paul and then others came to that Gentile world and opened up the gospel, the free gospel to salvation. And that's what God had already planned from eternity past. And here we have it. And Paul is just saying, this is what 
is happening. God is making it happen. This is what's going on, fellow Jews. And He reminds them, hey, you are not righteous if you're a Gentile. You are not looking for righteousness, but you found it. Okay. Now, the Jews knew this. They, they knew that the Gentiles weren't right. And they were despicable, dirty people, as they were too. And as he's saying they're brought near to God, we ask this, how can this be that they found righteousness? You see, that's the whole point. We have to be righteous before a holy God. Remember Martin Luther? He knew his problem. He was in a system that kept him from discovering it, but he still knew that he was not righteous. And everybody wants to go around saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. You guys have heard that. You've said it probably many years ago. You don't say that now, do you? <laughs> but, uh, oh yeah, oh, you really believe that, huh? There were a lot of Gentiles that thought they were good. I can tell you what, the Jews sure thought they were good. That was the problem. Because until you can recognize that you need righteousness outside of yourself, you can't get it. Martin Luther, what would he do? Always say it. But he would go to, into, you know, he was at the monastery. That's what he did. And from the Roman system, and he would go in and confess his sins. As soon as he walked out confessing his sins, he would turn right back around and go in that confessional and do it all over again because he thought a thought as he walked out of there and he knew that he wasn't right. And uh, then again, after he was forgiven, which he was not, he walked and he would want to go right back again because he found out that he was not righteous and when he discovered that and really realized that truth, he hated God. Why did he hate Him? Because he knew he couldn't get his righteousness. Not through his own works because Martin Luther was good if anybody was good. Like Paul or Saul was good, he became Paul later. I mean, he was the Jew of Jews, the Benjamite of Benjamites, the Pharisee of Pharisees. If anybody has it, Saul did and that's the problem. He was stuck in that rut where he was righteous by his own account. Hey, I'm pretty good. I think Saul would say, I'm very good. And who are you to challenge me? And he'd go after anybody that would preach that kind of gospel of grace. So, here we are. It was due entirely from the seeking of the grace of God. And nobody seeks after the grace of God until God seeks after them. That's what He did with the Gentile. But it's due entirely to the grace of God. I think He's saying that all the way through Romans 9, isn't He? You're elect, and then you are saved and justified, given righteousness by grace. No other way. The Gentiles are putting their fist up of course, the Gentiles have no idea, have no clue of any of this. They didn't earn any righteousness, did they? They didn't earn it. The Jews are thinking, and we'll get to that in a moment, I earned it, buddy. I deserve it. 
Because I did the law. I went over and above it. I did the law. That's called self-righteousness. And that's the problem with every Jew and every Gentile. Every person has a self-righteousness. And even Christians battle with this self-righteousness constantly. I confess. I'm sorry. I have a self-righteousness that I want the Lord to defeat. It'll take a lifetime, but it'll finally be done. Just like it will with you. We have that problem, but at least we know we're saved by grace and we'd never say anything else because if we did, we wouldn't be a believer then. And if we ever say, well, I'm pretty good without qualifying it in Christ, we need to examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith because really that's a stench to God for anybody to say, I'm, I'm a good person. Oh, God hates that. That's a blasphemy. That goes against everything that is in Scripture. It goes against the whole Gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. It goes against Christ Himself. So anyway, you notice, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... What's the next word? I've got attained righteousness or obtained righteousness. And I want you to catch this. I want you to catch this word as we move through this. Obtained or inherited. They got it. Not on their own, because they weren't pursuing it, right? He makes something very obvious. They're not pursuing it. How they get it? They obtained it or they in inherited it. They were given. It's a, a gift. It's a, a gift that was given to them. It's astonishing. This is astonishing mercy. It's amazing grace. And nothing they did. See, Paul is trying to establish that he's already done all of this coming up to verse 30 about the Jews. They do it the same way. It's grace that they have to depend upon. And so the word there is katalabando. Katalabano means to lay hold of, to uh, take it in, to make it your own, something that you have obtained and better yet been given. That's the word there. I want you to compare that with in verse 31, the very next verse, which is dealing with Israel and pursuing a law of righteousness. They did pursue, and they did pursue the law that was given by God. They did pursue righteousness, but they did not, my word says, arrive at the law. That's not the same word as the Gentiles who obtained righteousness. This word here is arrive. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to get this idea of obtaining righteousness. Uh, they, the reason I can say it was given to them because otherwise they were not pursuing. You see, they were haters of God. They were guilty of multitudes of blasphemies and abominations. Abominations constantly, 
all through the day. How many are there? You can't even count it. I don't know what's beyond the word trillions. Anyway, Romans 1, they were not righteous and now we see what Romans 1 is and how evil and wicked man is without the law of God. But God then gives them the gospel and they are becoming partakers of righteousness. So that's what we have to have if we're going to be before God. And when somebody says, I have righteousness. Yeah, it's because of what Christ did on the cross, but it's also what I do and what my church says. And as long as I do that along with Christ, that's an abomination, folks. That is horrible theology. It's not the theology that is of Scripture whatsoever. It is by grace alone, or it's not. And that's why the Reformation is so dear to us, because that's what they cry. Grace alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. So I want you to keep these two things together. They go together. Unconditional election. That's what we've talked about so much. And obtaining righteousness. Election and righteousness. That is the cry of the Reformation. What is it? Justified by faith alone. You can say, How do, what do you mean? Unconditional election. How is that righteousness? Well, see, when you are elected and then you are saved, you are called and then you are saved, you are given righteousness, all of the righteousness of Christ. So that is righteousness or just. What does it say in Romans 1? Remember that? In Romans 1.17, the just or the what? The righteous shall live by faith. You see, election or righteousness goes along with faith. You cannot separate them. How can you get God's righteousness? By faith. That means you have to believe. You have to trust in the sacrifice on the cross. We know that, right? That's just the heart of the gospel. That's simple. That's easy. When God chooses unconditionally an unworthy sinner, would that be us? Anybody that is saved. When He chooses us to be His child and to be saved from the wrath to come and given everlasting joy... He can't just bring us into fellowship. What does He have to give us? Righteousness. He will not let us stand before Him without the righteousness of Christ. Not our righteousness at all. Not 1% of it. But His righteousness. I was talking with Taylor this week, and it's interesting as we got to that. And of course, he has a like a heart, like all of us who have family, uh, deep rooted into a very religious background, and they've been taught that if you do this, you do that; you do this, you do that; you keep doing this, you can consider yourself good. All throughout that week. 
It's interesting that they do some things and say some things that are very ungodly, which we can identify with, because guess what? We do too. What makes the difference? Well, we never claim the righteousness of our own. And so as Taylor was relating to me, we go, I go, yeah, that is the problem of every person. Because we think we are good enough, we compare it to ourselves to other people. Is it a grading on a curve or what? We reach at a certain point. Uh, but yet those very people who are pursuing that law of the church that set every all the rules down, if they go through those things, it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm righteous because I did those things. I did the baptism. I did the First Communion. I did all those things that the church said and that the priest said and that the Pope said, so therefore I'm good. That's why they can say that. But does it say it here in the Scripture? Check it out. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God or hearing about the Word of Christ or hearing about the Gospel, how you're really saved. So it takes the rug out from beneath their feet and they have nothing else standing. There's no foundation there. And that's why we would be like Paul. It's sorrow, grieving for those lost family members, lost friends, lost co-workers. We grieve for them. Paul did that. But then he also knows that it's God who saves we're given the command to give the truth out, but I can't save them and nobody can. Only what Christ did on the cross and the calling of them to faith, that that's how it happens. And so goes the Gospel. Now, I think all of us can identify with what Taylor said. He says that's what they're saying. Right, Taylor? And everyone here, I think, identifies with that. Does it make your heart sad? We're, we're with you all. It really does. It makes you grieve. That's where Paul is at. He pours out his heart by pouring out the very Word of God and giving it to them. And I guarantee you, there have been a lot of people very mad when Paul would give them what we just went through. When he gave them the Gospel and told them about what righteousness is, they are justified by faith and faith alone. Not your works. People get really mad at that. They get really mad at somebody obtaining that that didn't earn it. I did all this and then they didn't earn it. They didn't do anything. Well, that might be why they were saved. They didn't do anything. Because they knew they couldn't do anything, and they got to that point, and all they could do is throw themselves upon the mercy of God, realizing it's the righteousness of Christ and that alone that can get me into heaven because I can't. We know about works and salvation, that kind of thing. Uh, but the Gentiles never pursued, and yet the eternal life, they obtained it. Now we read Romans 1.17, right? And where it comes to that point, the just, the righteous will live. They're saved by faith. They will live by faith. The righteous. Will. How, how do you get righteousness? We're, well, 
all throughout Romans we get the idea in Romans 4, righteousness. Well, Romans 3 really introduces how it is, and then in 4 we get the example of Abraham. He believed God and has counted him as righteousness. Chapter 4, he used David, great King David. And he believed God. It's counted a righteousness to him. It's, it's about believing God, the biblical God, not some kind of God we put in our own mind of what people have told us in some kind of a religion, but the gospel that is poured forth in all of God's truth. It's about Christ. We're Christ centered, aren't we? That's where everything is at. If we're not Christ centered, we're nothing centered. We're nowhere. We don't have any righteousness. Uh, look in Romans 10, starting at verse 8. Now Romans 10, we're going to be there. We're going to be there next week. And I don't want to try to jump ahead. Let's look at verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, pistuo, trust, believe, resulting in, what's that key word? Righteousness or justification. Resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, and here's where it is, in context, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Anybody who believes in God, they're saved. That's as simple as it means. That means we can say, if somebody calls upon God, at verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we can say to the lost sinner. We don't know if they're going to be saved, but we can, we can do this. We can call on the name of the Lord. That lost sinner can call on Him. Because they've heard the word of the truth, they've heard the gospel. And all of a sudden they become repentant. God grants them faith. He regenerates them. And... So it says in verse... Oh, let's read. How will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How are they going to do that? How did the Gentiles do that? How did they call on the Lord whenever they didn't have anything to believe? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? Are you seeing the context of this? And we're going to be studying this later on and get some more depth. But And how will they hear without a preacher? How is a lost person going to know what it is without the preaching of the Word of God? Now they can have a Bible, but they don't know what it says. They have no idea and usually it just sits on the coffee table at best. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those being good news and good things. Oh, that is beautiful, isn't it? Somebody sent you a preacher. Somebody taught you the gospel and gave it to you. 16, however, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah 6. There were, most of the nation of Israel did not believe it. They had the gospel. They had everything they needed, didn't they? Everything! The Gentiles didn't. But here he says, here's that key verse in context. So faith comes from hearing. 
and hearing by the Word of Christ. The hearing of the Messiah. The Mashiach has come. And it's stated all throughout the Old Testament. Paul used that. Then he had new revelation as he wrote New Testament books. Incredible. Incredible it is. As he comes to those cities, places that had never heard the gospel, he taught it and people came to Christ because they were called. God had to send a preacher. And then preachers have been sent out and every one of us are preachers of the good news. You are responsible for that news that's been given to cast it out, to cast the seed out. People can be saved from being lost, not from their religion are they saved, but they can be saved from their religion to the truth of Christ. They can get the righteousness of Christ. If anybody has the righteousness of Christ, they're saved. Okay, now, with that being said, I've got on your outline righteousness, which is by faith. Righteousness and faith go together. The just shall live by faith. And that's what Paul gave. Did you know the theme of Romans is Romans 1.17? How did Martin Luther come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is what it's all about? How did he do that? How did he get that righteousness? called upon the Lord. And he got rid of his self-righteousness because he knew he wasn't getting it. He hated God because he knew he wasn't right. And it was God's righteousness on him. So therefore, the very key verse, the foundational verse, what it is for salvation is that the just shall live by faith. That's where the Reformation showed in all its glory. That's where Martin Luther understood it as he read from Erasmus's Greek text. And he read it accurately. And he dropped everything. Went to his knees to the Lord because he found out that he's now justified. He is righteous because he believes it. He believes in Christ being his righteousness. That's too simple. Oh, it's so profound. Because almost all the world doesn't get it. They don't get it. So now, what we're going to do is that we've realized that it's another that has done this, hasn't it? It's Christ. And look at this verse, folks. This ought to be a key verse for where we are at today. And we'll get into this probably next week. Verse 4. For or because Christ is the end, or how about G-O-A-L, goal. I want you to get this right here. You can say, I know all about this, just to live by faith and everything. Get, get the depth of it. Listen carefully. For Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did you see righteousness there? And did you see belief there? Yes. Did you see what is the goal of the law? 
it's to see that it's Christ is the goal. The law really is pointing to Christ. Do you get it? That's the whole point of the law. What does the law do? Well, in Romans it says it convicts you of sin. It convicts the the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's what the law was designed to do and it cannot save, it never will save. And the whole Jewish nation was trying to do that to be saved rather than trust in the Messiah that was to come or was right there walking with them and they all missed it except for a few. And who were those guys? The remnant. They got it, but the nation didn't. They did not receive Christ. It says in John 1.12 They received Him not. John 1.12, 1.13 It's all about the will of God and such. Um, that verse 4 explains it, doesn't it? For Christ is the end of the law. It's the goal of the law for righteousness. It's the tutor. The law drives us. It trains us to go to Christ I've been given the law and it condemns me. I need righteousness. The same way that Martin Luther needed that righteousness. The same way that Saul who became Paul realized he thought he was righteous. Philippians 3 talks about that. But he needed the righteousness of Christ. It was all rubbish to him. And it was the gospel of Christ that was the treasure. So Christ is the goal. The proud-hearted legalist pursues self-righteously a right relationship to God. And it says they went after the law of righteousness. But they didn't go after the Messiah. See, they did not attain it. You see this in Romans 9? Here's the word that I was trying to point you to earlier. Why? At the end of verse 31. They pursued the law of righteousness. Did the Gentiles pursue the law of righteousness? No, they didn't have a law. Did they pursue righteousness? No. (laughs) They had the wrath of God upon them. Because they were not right. Because they could not be right. And it says here, verse 31, but Israel did not arrive at the law. They did not attain to the law. They kept going up the rope and they kept doing things more and more and proving to themselves how right they were and they never attained to it. The Pharisees were all so legal, weren't they? They made up 613 laws to go along with God's Ten Commandments so that we would make sure that we'd get everything right. What a burden they put on the people. Oh, you know what religion does? They put a burden on people. Christ says, come to me who are heavily burdened and I'll give you rest. You see, you cannot attain to Christ if you're not pursuing Him and His righteousness. People are right because of what they've done. No, they're wrong. The Jews thought they were already righteous. They had spent their whole life pursuing a right relationship with God. 
through their own efforts. You see, the law came to some, though, and condemned them of their sin. But to some, it condemned them of their sin, but it didn't compute. They didn't like that. And so they thought themselves to be righteous, and the Jews then rejected, except for a small remnant, they rejected the very answer to all of this, this righteousness. I've got that on the outline. Failed to see they failed. Does that make any sense? It should, but let me explain it for a moment. They failed because that's who they were. They were all failures. But they didn't see that they were failures. You see, the law, which is what they held before them every day, they failed to be able to see what the goal of that law is, it should have told them, I can't do this. I, I know I lie. Uh, I know that I've stolen a few things. I don't commit adultery, but I do think some bad things that are immoral. Jesus clarified all that, and he says, if you even think upon those, that's where your heart really is. That's what you are about. That's your nature. You are that. You're a lawbreaker. You think you're a law keeper? You're a law breaker. You know what? The only thing is that you can do to be saved, let's say it in a negative way, it's to believe you can be, do nothing to be saved. And that's where it all starts. Because you realize I'm nothing. I'm worse than nothing. I'm worse than dirt. I need the righteousness of God. And then we cast ourselves upon the very mercy of God because God gave mercy to all those people, didn't He? That's the way a sinner comes to God. They say, I am no good. I can't get to God on my own. And I am sorry. I repent of my sins. And I am trusting in that one Christ who paid for my salvation. I'm trusting in the mercy of God. Now we go to point three. Verse 32 and 33. Why did the Jews fail to attain the salvation? Why is it? Well, they didn't pursue righteousness by faith, did they? But by works, as it says in 33 here. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. As it said here, they pursued the law of righteousness, but they didn't see the goal that was Christ, but as though it were by works. They pursued it by works. Why didn't they get it? Because they didn't seek it by what? Faith. It's simple. They pursued it by works. They tried to get it by law. By keeping the law. You see, merciful salvation is obtained as a free gift. As an offense. To a self-righteous Jew, this is the way that it worked. 
whenever the gospel is given, they were offended. And Paul is saying, none of your works matter. None of mine did either, he says. None of your works counts. He says, you know, you can't handle it. You can't handle it, can you? You're offended. He knew they were offended because he says all your works account all add up to zero. Nothing. Your religious deeds that you've done all your life, you add them up, they're zero. Oh, that would make them mad. Or what would it do? On the other side, it would make them repentant. You know, it's when the Jew looked at the cross, what they do with that? When they were told that this man is dying for their sins, wonder what they were thinking. If you were there at the time of the cross, the cross was to them, it says in Corinthians, foolishness. He's dying for my sin. Right. And they look down upon him because he's weak. He's not your righteousness. Look at him, he's a dying man, he's going to die. See, they did not pursue it by faith. I thought it was by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. All throughout, before the time of Christ, they stumbled over what everything was pointing to. And when Christ was walking here on earth, they stumbled over Him completely, like the Pharisees did, Sadducees. The whole religious order stumbled over the stone. They didn't believe in Him. What does stumbling over the stone or stumbling over Christ mean? Well, in this context, it means that they did not believe on Christ for righteousness, that that is the very goal of the law. The law is to condemn you. That's what it's for. They didn't see Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's found in Romans 10. We're going to be look at that next week. They didn't look at that. The law was saying in its larger, long-term message, you have to look beyond the law and, and perfect righteousness, which is what God expects. You must look beyond your obedience to the law and the perfect righteousness that God will provide is what you're to look at. You're to look at God the Provider. God provides the Lamb. He provides righteousness. Christ for righteousness to everyone who has faith. Romans 10.4 Christ for righteousness to everyone who has faith. Paul wants to, I think, affirm his point all the way throughout here, what he's done with this whole chapter. He quoted two Old Testament prophets that we looked at last week, Hosea and Isaiah. Now he concludes this chapter with, again, Old Testament quotes. Don't you love it? He supports the very Word of God. He supports what He's telling. It's nothing new. This has always been God's plan. And so what He does is He quotes out of Isaiah. And He quotes two passages. One is not enough. He'll give you two. Two is a testimony. You need two witnesses or three for a testimony. Paul always does that. So one time, one somebody asked some young buck preaching the gospel, and he got 
very annoyed because we went to many passages throughout our text for the day. And he said, you guys, all you old guys like that. I'm not kidding you. This is the way that he said it. He says, all you old guys and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, anybody that does that, and they, they keep giving extra verses. He says, I don't get it. He says, you don't have to do that. I was going, well, that's the way that Paul did it. That's giving Scripture to prove what we're saying is right so that you'll have something there to, to validify to somebody else too that you may need someday. It's to give us a, a, a memory. Needless to say, that was the time whenever he wanted to move on. He, was, he had been a preacher and, and he uh, just, you know, he taught with us even, but he, he said that. And uh, no longer did he need MacArthur or anybody else. He'd just read the text and he would tell his little stories, experiences and such. He would explain it a little bit, but then he would go off. And then I'm going, yep, that's what happens. That was sad. Hate to see stuff like that, but it happens. Um, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, we're going to get to those texts just in a moment, and uh, we're doing pretty good on time. We're, we're, we're getting near the end. Uh, but I'm actually on my last page, it, whatever that means. <laughs> I just did one page today, guys. <laughs> just kidding. One twenty-two. Um, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the Jews called all of this absolute foolishness. They denied all of the truth that had been given. They hated the doctrine of election. They hated saved by grace, saved by faith through you know, saved by faith through grace. Saved by grace through faith is what it goes. Twenty-seven through twenty-nine in chapter two. No, no, no. First Corinthians one. I'm sorry. One twenty-two. Do we have that? Uh, I we already read that, didn't we? Did I read twenty-seven? No, I didn't. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised God has chosen the things that are not. See, He went to the Gentiles. Of course, those could be Jews too. But you see what he's saying there? What a backup all of that is. Uh, let's go now to what he's quoting. Um, he's affirming the point. Let's go to that text, Isaiah 8.14. And he's actually taking Isaiah 8.14, and he's also going to do Isaiah 28. Let's go to 8.14 first. And he said, Isaiah already said this. Did you guys remember he said 8.14, then he shall become a sanctuary, both to the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. That's about Israel. 
Isaiah said it. 700 years before Christ, he said it within 100 years that it was going to be judged not only of Israel, the ten tribes, but really Judah was going to fall or stumble. That's really what what it comes out to be. That uh, is a sad story, but it was told before it even happened. Um, that's the the idea there. Now let's go to chapter 20, um, 28, verse 16, which he is quoting from Isaiah again. Not Hosea this time, just Isaiah. Just two verses. 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. You know what? What you have is that the rock is God, isn't it? But we also see that the rock is Jesus, if you go to 1 Peter 2.8, he's kind of doing the same kind of quoting and the idea is being put forth as uh, Isaiah or as we have here in Romans. Uh, 1 Peter 2.8, what do we have? Let's do 7. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, back in verse 9. Uh, I lay in Zion, uh, Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you see what he did there? He has combined... Two texts from Isaiah chapter 8 and 28, and he's put, him, put them in his text here in our Romans 9. And so he's saying that this stumbling stone offends. The stumbling stone actually causes people to fall over, to trip over. They don't notice the significance of this stone. He's ever there before them, but they don't get it. He, uh, he gets in the way of their pursuit. He tries to get in the way of their pursuit of their own righteousness. He's very bothersome. He's an irritant. They hated Him. And they kept going after Him and after Him. They still do today. Christ came and He caused them to stumble in a self-righteous pursuit. They stumble. He was there, right there before them. Did you know that He's a stone. And a stone to most people is a stone. It's a rock. Now Penny here, when she sees a stone, man, it's precious. And it can be any kind of stone. They're all really cool. And then you go up to Michigan, they're even cooler up there. Not that Michigan is a picture of heaven, but they do have some treasured stones, don't they? But you know what? Some people don't get that. They don't get the idea of that stone. It's lo- what's the deal with that? Jesus came here, and uh, he was he really—he's uh, the king of the universe. But he was born in a manger. Everything about him was humble. Nobody recognized him as the great king, and of course, how they killed him was very humbling. 
another second one is the gospel is to be received by faith. It's not by just knowledge that helps, but faith. It's not just being born in a certain family or having some kind of ritual that you go through to get into it. Simply by faith. That really offends people. And I've said many times that people are very religious. You have to trust in Him. It's all by faith. You can only be saved by grace through faith. And, and they'll say, yeah, well, if you tell that to other people, then that means they can go and do whatever they want to do. And you want to say then just for fun? So. Uh, but the thing is, mark of a Christian is that they don't want sin, but they get into that and just like they're not sinners. They're self-righteous. But you see, that's the only way we can say you have to receive this by faith. And I mean trusting in Him. Trusting Him as your only way to Him, that offends a lot of people. It, it certainly offended the Jews, didn't it? That's why they didn't trust in Christ. A, a third way is sovereign election. We have that before us all the time. People, whenever you mention election, get all bent out of shape. I'm talking about Christians. They get very upset because you mention that. Or because you mentioned that, hey, we're looking at Romans 9. Oh, I'd never look at Romans 9. What, you're saying it's, it, it's, it's evil? Well, no, but you can't understand that. That You shouldn't be touching that. Well, then why did God give it to us? You know, or It's like people say, Revelation, oh no, that's just too deep. I don't like Revelation. I'd never read that. It's, it's scary. I'm going, God is scary? What? You're saying that He made a mistake by giving that to us? Are you kidding me? Blessed is the one who reads and understands this prophecy. Right? Everything here is of God. And that doctrine is something that we've been looking at for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I don't apologize. Matter of fact, I say, isn't this a blessing? Because this is the only way that you can get to God is because He chose you. At the same time, you had faith. The responsibility is on you to trust in that. I'm not going to go any further with that. Try to reckon it out. The stumbling stone, he'll cause some people to be offended. He'll be, cru he'll be a crushing and a smiting stone to them. In judgment, he's already said that. Go to Psalm 118.22. We're going to do this real quickly. Ready? This is about that stumbling stone, the rock of offense, that's also the very rock that is the rock of us. The rock of salvation. Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected, who's the builders? Israel. Has become the chief cornerstone. The Messiah. That's the one the Jews missed. What's their problem? They don't believe in it. That's why. Matthew 21, verse 42. I'm going through this very quickly now. This is the Bible study portion of our message today. Uh, 2142. Jesus speaking here. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? Did you never read this? Oh boy, have they ever read this. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Oh, do you think maybe they liked that? He says this, therefore, because I said this, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Gentiles, the Pharisees, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
You know what he's saying? I'm going to the Gentiles now. Jesus mentioned Gentiles, you know, the widow from Zarephath, or Gentiles that were actually saved, or the, the one who was cured of leprosy. That was a Syrian. Wow. Uh, boy, do you think they stumbled over that? His kingdom's going to be taken away from you. He who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He says, if you don't have faith, you're going to be judged. Jesus said that. That's, that's my word. People say, well, I like the Gospels, you know, the, the red letter. Anything that Jesus says is what I believe in. What, you don't believe what Paul says? No, I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, Paul's a feminist anyway. You know, he's a bigot. By the way, I was teaching in a Sunday school class in a, in a Baptist church uh, many, many years ago. Before this church started, or about that time, pretty close then, about after that. <laughs> and uh, Debbie and Carolyn would certainly know what it was. But uh, I, I was preaching or teaching, just teaching a Sunday school class in Timothy, dealing with uh, something that the people didn't like. It's written by Paul. It's about pastors and and. Uh, um, they are to be men and, and not women. And one man stood up and said, Paul's a bigot! I, and he yelled it like that. Very, it was very loud. We were in a trailer. And it was definitely not mistaken what he said. And uh, I won't tell the rest of the story, but I'm just saying things really started developing after that. And... Uh, we were affected in big ways. That's why we're here today. Praise God. Because that verse shouldn't have been there is really what he said. And you're not supposed to be reading that. That's not in the Sunday school quarterly. Oh, oh, oh. oh I'm glad the pastor was there that day to kind of uh, keep... I didn't know if Dukes would be flying at me or what. I didn't know what was going to happen. But things changed drastically after that. Why am I saying that? Because Paul was a bigot and all. See, the Word of God is a stumbling block for people whenever it comes to them being offended and they say, that's not true. They're saying that to God. It doesn't offend me. We just read this. I didn't even comment on it. Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. By the way, I don't hold a grudge on any of that because I thank the Lord because things developed out of that that I never dreamed. Here we are. Verse 10, Let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, that might make them a little mad, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. What's the next verse? He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, the Messiah. Are we seeing one verse after another verse? Paul quoted it tremendously. Uh, we've seen David write it. We've seen Jesus say it. We've seen Paul say it. Turn to Matthew sixteen eighteen. Oh, this is wonderful. 
Yes, the gospel is offensive. I said there. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. Petros. It means this. A little rock. And upon this rock, Petra, which is a mass of foundation rock, huge, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter had made a great confession. His confession came from the Lord. His confession is Jesus Christ is God. He's Lord. Jesus Christ is the rock. God is the rock in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is revealed as the rock. The builders rejected. And yet, the nation of Israel does not get that. Now go back, go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to Him, Christ, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up, this is us folks, living stones, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, we are priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not lambs, but the praises of God, and it's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then what does he quote? Look at this. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Will not be di- If you believe in that, you've got it for eternal life. You're not disappointed. It's true. It's right. You'll never be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. That's why we can go out and give the gospel. For you who believe. If you believe, and if they come to Him who has called to them, He will no wise cast them out. And He can say, oh, that's the answer to the thing about the sovereignty of God. It is. His election. He's going to call the ones He's already chosen. When we go out and give that, that, drop that seed out there, there are going to be some people who actually come to Christ. They're drawn by Him. And there you go. There it's at. But what about the ones who rejected? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. The Gospel. They're disobedient to it. That's their own choice to be disobedient. For that is who they are. And look at this. And to this doom, they were also appointed. We're living stones. Others are not living stones. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. We call out to them in the Gospel. And we pray that God calls them. And He does the work. Only Christ's perfect righteousness suffices He's the one we brag in, boast about, give glory to. We don't have anything to be boasting about but Him. We can boast all we want in Him. That's where the glory is at. It's in Christ. It's Christ's perfect righteousness that He's given 
to us. He's imputed it to us. He's put it into our bank account. It's a banking term, folks. He's given us the riches of His glory. And this is for everyone who has faith. Let's pray. Father, great holy God, if there be not anyone who here has faith, we desire that they come to Your faith and that You would draw them right into the kingdom and convict them of their sin. Lord, if anybody is watching and listening to the watching and listening to the video or the audio, that if they see their need of righteousness, that it would be Christ, and they would fall upon their knees and cast themselves upon Your mercy, repent of that sin, believing in Christ as their only righteousness. We know that You will do that. You will save them. We give You all the glory, Lord. In a very difficult text, but we see much glory in this difficult text that we've been in in a whole chapter of nine, and as we have other two other chapters devoted to that thought, Lord, we can't wait till next week to take pleasure and feast in your word in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen. Amen.